If you're nervous, we will be back in Genesis uh, next week. So, Just to calm your fears, I guess. Yeah. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Holy Father, help us to never forget all the many ways you bless us. Thank you for the way that you gave safety to many as they were traveling today with the icy roads. Thank you for the wisdom you gave some people to not come because of the way the roads were. And so, Dear Holy Father, as your flock gathers together around your word right now, help us to remind ourselves continually again that it is by you and through you and in you that we have our being. And as we open up your word now and see what the church did and acts and the principles that we need to draw from that, Daily Father, may we drink deeply of it and be uh, cut to the quick to realize how we need to be faithful in this generation. In your son's name we pray. Amen. The English language is unique. Uh, for those of you who say, you know, we got the King's English and we deal with it, right? There's many things in the English language that you could go that does not make any sense, especially if you've ever had to try to teach it to someone. And you'll even see in your notes there that there are four words that if you were trying to teach these words even to a young child, you'd look at the first one and you have an H and a U O U R, and we would all say that's our, right? And you put a different letter in front of that and you would get sour, right? And so if that's following the case, the next two words would be pronounced tower and power, right? But no, because of the English language, we just throw a T and a P in front of those same things and it's a totally different word. And there can be confusion on that as you are walking through teaching these things. So when we even come to the title of the sermon today, you notice it says the four priority of the churches. And some of you would say, Tim, shouldn't you be making that plural? Well, the wonderful world of the King's English uh, changes over time. And certain words that we have that we didn't have, now we do have. And not too long ago, you could only have one priority. That was just the way it was used. You could not have priorities because if you had priorities, you have two and you can only have one priority. All right. And but because of the world we live in where we try to say everything's a priority, because if everything's a priority, what do we find? There are no priorities. Right. And so when we think of this and you go, what was the early church focused on? What were their priorities? And I'm going to say it's one priority as we look through this. And so when you're going through this little play on words that we have one priority, but you're going to see four of them in the text. Now let me read the passage here and then give you a word of caution. Acts 2.42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. A word of caution, and this can happen because there have been way too many books written about the early church in Acts. I'll just throw that out to you. When they write these books, they, start, they idolize this time period. Sometimes if you're not careful in the American world, we like to idolize the time period of revolution, and that was when everything wonderful happened, and you're like, actually, there was a massive rebellion and war, but let's not deal with that. We go back and we just kind of idolize that time period. But when it comes to church history, the idolization of the early church is to be one that sadly many times has skewed us because we need to remind ourselves that what the early church was called to they were called to do the principles that God had taught the church in that time and in that place. So I'll give you an example. In the early church, one of the things the early church did, they sold all their land and they brought it in and they gave it to the church. Now, that is not a command that all of you need to sell all your land and bring it into the church. That was what the church did in Jerusalem at that time for that specific purpose. 
Now, principles and everything are the same, but the principles we have to ask ourselves are what are the principles we can learn from the early church that apply to us right now? Another error that can happen is we read about the early church and it sounds so organic. It sounds like they didn't, they didn't seem to have a lot of, if we would call it bureaucracy at that time. Um, there was just a group of people that opened their Bibles and read and away they went. And we can, in our struggle at times, even say, well, they didn't have leadership, they didn't have this, and I would say, actually, they did. One of the first things the church did was actually pick an apostle to replace Judas, who had died. They understood the importance of leadership. Uh, they also, Paul is also telling the church very early on that you need to pass on the truth to faithful men who will teach others instruction even on how to have leaders, elders and deacons and all these other things. And so if we're not careful, we can fall off the, the road on both sides of the issue. But when we look at this text in front of us, I believe this has much to say for us. I believe these principles here are what CBC is called to do and follow out uniquely in Stratford, Wisconsin. And I believe these principles are things that need to guide us as we move forward from year in and year out in order to remain faithful. But let me give you a little context of this passage here real quick before we dive into the first point. So Peter has just got done preaching what we would consider to be a phenomenal sermon, but if you were to look at it in the PR part, he literally calls out his audience and said, you crucified Jesus, all right? So PR standing, that would not have been the person that said, this is the best way to win friends and influence people. But what we find out is after this fiery sermon of Peter literally saying the people in the audience, you were the ones who crucified Jesus, and he is now alive and reigning in this world, 3,000 were added to the church that day. Now, if this was happening in our day and age, we would have said Peter is the next mega pastor, right? And they would, everybody would have ran up to him and said, what is your latest vision? Why don't you tell us how to do this? When is your clothing line coming out? When are you going to new, write a new Bible? And all these other things like that. The world would just go flocking to him as if we need to all learn how Peter preached sermons, which is interesting. Peter preached a sermon literally out of the Old Testament, which sadly most Preachers nowadays do not preach out of the Old Testament, which is its own other argument. And then someone would say in seminary, maybe that's why we don't have 3,000 souls added to the church daily, because we've rejected the Old Testament, but that's another sermon for another time. But Peter here gets done preaching this sermon, and all of a sudden you would think, what is the church going to do next? What are they going to focus on next? And you see this in the start of Verse 42, it says, and, meaning this is a conjunction between what just happened and what's going on. So what, what are they going to do? They, as a collective group, are going to devote themselves to something. This idea of devoting yourself is literally of giving oneself to this. It carries with it as this is what we're going to do next. We find this to be so important that we're all going to do this thing together. And you want to go, what is the, this thing they're doing together? Well, I want to read again this, and I want to put an emphasis on the way the text plays it. Now, it's missing in the ESV one of them, but I'll show you here. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And you should have a the after. And the fellowship, and to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. All right, you're going to go, did they really like the word the? Well, there's a reason why the word the is in there. All right, because it carries with it, they know what we're talking about. And I'll explain what this means. So let's look at point number one. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Now we have to ask ourselves, who are the apostles? And we've got to talk about their teaching. 
The apostles were a group of men. They literally knew their names. You can see that recorded in chapter 1. They knew who the apostles were. So this was no, like, I wonder who are these apostles or whatever. They knew them, and they already knew. That means the apostles are already teaching. Okay, and so what the church is going to do is they are going to take seriously what the apostles taught because the early church viewed what the apostles taught as God-given revelation. All right, and so they understood the apostles were teaching because who taught them? Jesus taught them, and now they are teaching others, and they took what was being taught very seriously. This was not a devotion to certain parts of what the apostles taught. This was a, a devotion to completely what the apostles taught. So what did the apostles teach? Well, guess what the apostles taught? They taught from the Old Testament, and what were they saying? Jesus is the Messiah. So they would take from the Old Testament and teach that what Jesus has said and done is actually happening. This is what Peter's whole sermon was. Straight out of the Old Testament, showing that Jesus fulfilled it. All right, Which would already mean in your minds, if we want to stay faithful to what God has called us to, what do we also need to teach out of? The Old Testament as well as the New Testament. So when we say the apostles' teaching, we know the full counsel of God. And the apostles set an example for the church what is important. Because what the apostles taught is what they're saying the church should also find important as well. Now, you might say that sounds kind of basic, and I'm going to say it is kind of basic, but it is also very crucial to us. Turn with me here to 1 Corinthians, where Paul is going to talk, and Paul speaks in a way that is incredibly important here. Because remember, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15 and we're going to pick it up in verse 3 and go all the way to verse 11. I'll read it, and then I'll come back and make some points on it. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 11. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. And that he appeared to Caiaphas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, last of all, also to one untimely born, as appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Paul here very clearly is telling us that in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance. What Paul is saying here, there are things that are very important and there's things that are not as important as the things that are very important. Because literally he goes, this is a first importance. You want to know what's important? I'm literally going to tell you what's important. And what does he say is important? He literally walks them through the gospel. And even as interesting as he walks them through the gospel, he says, these things happened according to the scriptures. So you could almost say, if, if you want to just bring it up into modern 1500 language, you could almost say that this is what we believe because we believe what Scripture alone teaches us. And so as you start to understand that it is Scripture that says it, because here's what Paul says, Scripture alone is what is teaching us, 
And what is Scripture alone teaching us? That it is by Christ alone that you're saved, because it is Christ who died for our sins. And you go on later, you will see that it is by grace alone, and also by faith alone, that Paul even believes this. And you could wrap it up by also saying, it is to the glory of God alone. You would find in this passage here all of the solas that we remind ourselves of every October of the very importance of what God is calling us to. These things are not just randomly brought about. These are what we would consider to be the major issues of the faith, that we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And where do we find that? In Scripture and Scripture alone. That is why the apostles' teaching is what we need to major on, There are also some things we need to minor on. Because if they are not the things we major on, then the things we minor on are the things we are to minor on. And this is the way the church has functioned for many years. And so then we need to ask ourselves this, that if, let's say, you are part of a church that are minoring on issues, and these minoring issues seem to divide, we need to be careful. Because when we take a minor issue and we disagree with others on it, and we start calling people who disagree with these things either the enemy or they're evil, or we're unwilling to discuss it, we're entering into dangerous territory because the things that are major we need to majorly talk about, and the things that are minor, what must we do then? We minor on them, but we do them with love towards one another. And I can guarantee you this. This happens weekly. Caleb will come into my office and we'll sit down and we will have discussions on things that I'm trying to convince him that I'm right, and he will try to convince me that he's right, and we can smile and laugh at each other and go on because those are minor issues that do not impact. And again, I could argue him that everything that he's wrong on has major impacts, but we can sit there and say, no, we can deal with these things in a God-honoring way because what has been the theme of the church for years to come, it says, in the essentials, what should we have? Unity. In the non-essentials, what should we have? Liberty, and in all things, charity. And so I could truly say I believe what God has called us to is the teaching and the preaching of the gospel in all things. And so we have to ask ourselves, how are we going to be faithful to that? Because that is what needs to be in front of us, the apostles' teaching, what Paul clearly stated. And we do not need to chase anything else. Because there will be things that will come in the future that will seem flashy, that will seem glittery for us to go after, but we must remind ourselves again, the gospel call is one and one alone, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, to Him be glory forever and ever, and where do we find that alone? We find that in Scripture alone. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Let's go back to Acts uh, 2 here. What was the next thing they devoted themselves to? The next thing they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, real quick here, in order to understand what the fellowship is, this is not some Lord of the Rings type of thing going on here. What the fellowship is that we're talking about here is this. The word fellowship is a noun here. It does not mean that they like to fellowship together or that they needed to do more fellowshipping. All right, This idea here, the fellowship is not an activity. It literally is the people. And when we think about the idea of fellowship, the fellowship is a group of people that is formed by what came before. What came before? The apostles' teaching. So what do you have? You have a group of fellowship that are literally formed by the apostles. The teaching of the apostles gathers in the fellowship. So here's how you, this is why this is important. Because as you preach the gospel, those who love the gospel will be drawn in and will fellowship together around the gospel. This is what brings in the fellowship. And the fellowship here 
is what is important is literally the people that are surrounding this group that is being taught by the apostles. And so another way of putting it, which is kind of interesting, is the church devoted themselves to the church. And you sit and go, wait a minute, what, what, what does that mean? So you're saying the church devoted themselves to themselves? And we go, this is all over scripture. But we sometimes miss it. So let's look at uh, Galatians 6. And now before all of our minds start to say, so Pastor Tim is calling us to be really ingrown. Let's, not, let's fight that. And if you weren't thinking it, no, now you did. Galatians 6, 9 through 10. It says, And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then we have an opportunity. Let us do good to everyone, especially to those who what? Or of the household of God. So where do they start first? The household of God, and then from there it spills out to the world around them. All right, let's go to John 13. John 13, 35. This is Jesus speaking. And he's speaking to the followers of God where he says in John 13, we'll go 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, and you also are to love one another. By this all people will know you are my disciples if you love who? one another. The love in the fellowship that God has called around the gospel is what literally will draw in people. They will know that we are Christians by our love, but where does that love start? In the fellowshipping one another around the gospel. And so you have to ask yourself, how does the church love each other? Because let's be honest, don't look around, all right? But if you were to look around, some of us are a little bit easier to love than others, all right? Some of us are a little more prickly parts of our, of our bodies than others that you would just go, boy, that person is a little bit harder to love. That takes more divine love than my own love here. But how do we do that? I believe Acts 4.42 tells us, we devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. How do we do that? When we focus on the word, what does the word call us to continually do? Repent and ask for forgiveness and be humble. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because you would all raise your hands. So actually, why don't we just do this? Everybody raise your hands so you don't have to. All right, good. All right, you all admitted to it. Have you ever said anything dumb? All right, that you wish you had not said. How many have ever said something, you literally see the words coming out of your mouth, and you're like, I can't bring that back, can you? All right? So imagine if one of the things that God has called you to was to stand in front of people and talk all the time and literally have it recorded for all of posterity's sake. Do you ever think you'd say something stupid? Yeah, all right, like it happens all the time. Like one of the things is that we're going through why we need love and forgiveness, I'm going to say some really dumb things. I'm going to say some things that may hurt you, some things that I wouldn't even meant to hurt you, but you took it that way and it hurt. I mean, uh, here's the other crazy part. I've even said things that were recorded very early on in my ministry that I don't even know if I would go, why did I even say it that way? That was so dumb. We should destroy that sermon, all right? That was just one of the dumbest sermons I ever preached, all right? You look back at these things and you say, but what happens in the fellowship, though? We can so tear one another apart by wounds from one another instead of understanding what is the fellowship to be known as, one that is forgiving and one that is loving. And you go, well, how does that happen? All right, well, as we focus on the apostles' teaching, we will start to realize we are to love one another. And has God given us an ordinance to help us to remind ourselves of a continual need for forgiveness and fellowship with one another? And you would say, 
Yes, he has. All right, what does the text tell us? To the breaking of bread. Now, this was not because Panera Bread came into town or anything else. The breaking of bread here in the text literally means the Lord's Supper. All right, we're breaking of bread. Point number three is the breaking of bread. This is referring to the Lord's Supper. Remember this, though, that the Lord's Supper is part of a larger meal. And as the church would gather together, they would take communion. But it's very interesting, one of the first things that communion calls us you to do, and Paul tells you this in Corinthians, it's examine yourself to make sure you are okay with one another and with God. And guess what? When you're okay with one another, guess what that starts to bring in the church body? Love and humility and forgiveness that helps the fellowship love one another. Literally, communion is a reminder of God's great sacrifice on the cross and a reminder to get your act together, people. Because literally, communion comes with a, you do this wrongly, you are in danger of God's judgment on you. It's interesting, we have, our, the church world gets so more bent out of shape about modes of baptism, and we take communion so lightly that you go, well, wait a minute, which one literally carries the judgment of Almighty God on it? I'll help you out. It's not baptism. It's the Lord's Supper that say, those of you who are taking this lightly have God's judgment on you. Now, by the way, just in case, the word baptism means immersion, so you don't have to deal with that. It literally, that's what the word means. So when we think about the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is a reminder of that great cost of redemption, the redemption for the body of believers that you are part of and the unity that you will have around the table. That's the reason why when we take communion, we fence the table. And what fencing the table is, there's no one who pulls out their white picket fence, but what we do is remind people this table is for those who are believers in Christ. Because this table is a unifying thing. That is why we say at communion, sometimes we say it more eloquently than others, but it is what it is, right? Reminding ourselves that when you come before this table, if you have something between someone else, stay away. Get that right, and then come to the table in unity. And this is why we do these things. This is what the... They did. Now, it seems to me that they, when they did this, they did communion every single time they were together. Again, everybody has, we can argue rationales between should we do it weekly, should we do it quarterly, should we do it whatever, all right? But church here, we decide to do it once a month, all right? So that means you have three weeks of living in rebellion and you've got to get your act together once a month. No, what that means is literally every single time you step in the doors here, you should be thinking, am I at fellowship with the other believers around this? Because what are we doing even right now? Coming together in unity around the word. And this is why, as we fellowship with one another, we need to keep short sin accounts with each other. Because literally, as we interact with one another, we are showing an example to the world around us of what Christian love looks like. And Christian love looks like one of humility, and one of repentance, and then one of unity. It's interesting, though, after they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and then we have the last one, to the prayers. Now... When we, when we think of the, the idea of the prayers, I want to be careful. This, this here is not meaning, when we think of this, this is not a set of prayers. Like some would say, did they just come together and just pray the Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, every single time. No, this is not what's going on here, because I would argue the book of Acts is teaching us things differently. When they say to, the, to prayers, what I believe here is a pattern of one voice in one singular focus of the church gathering together to pray. 
This would we we'd call corporate prayer, what they're focused on. So I want to take a moment here and let's look at, we have two examples in the book of Acts right in front of us of this prayer. So let's go back to Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. In Acts chapter 1, 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount, of Olive, Mount Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And they entered in, and they went into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas the son of James, all with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And you're going to say, what are they praying about? Well, let's go back to a promise that has just been promised them. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And while they were staying with them, and he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John the Baptist baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What are they praying for? They're praying for the promised Holy Spirit to come. Now, it's interesting here. We see them praying in one accord, and what are they praying about? That God would keep His promises. And literally, the way that God is able to keep His promises is because He is literally sovereign over what's going on in this world. And literally, the promises and the sovereignty of God are the things that draw them to prayer. Now, they could have gone back and said, well, listen, God has already promised. Why does it matter? Let's just sit around. We don't need to do anything. It literally was because God had promised it, and because He's in sovereign control, having the ability to do what He says He will do, is what they came and they said, God, because you are the one that is in control of all things, we are literally going to pray that you do what you have promised and that you keep your word. And it's interesting how they even function. They functioned under the idea that God will keep his promise, that he is sovereign over all the affairs of men. Because they come back and now Judas is dead, right? And they're trying to figure out who we're going to have as the next disciple. And what do they see in front of them? They have two qualified men. And they go, well, how are we going to determine this? But they understood that God is sovereign over all things, even the smallest little things. And what did they do? They cast lots. And when it fell to Matthias there, Matthias is picked as the one because they said God is the one that did it. They didn't say, hey, good thing chance won out. No, they said it is God who does this because even the Proverbs even tell us, even the casting of the die is in God's hands. And so we see the very promises of God are what the early church is praying. They understood that God was in control. They understood what he said that he would do. Now, this is something that not only the early church believed. In 2 Samuel 7, 25, you don't need to turn there, but this is David when he's praying. And listen to how David prayed. And now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. Do as you have spoken. David literally took the promise of God that you promised that you would establish me as the king of Israel. And he said, so now do what you said you were going to do. When the people of God pray, the people of God remind God of the promises that God had said because he has the ability to complete it. It's interesting, the pattern here. The pattern is, God, you said it. Now we're going to gather together and pray that you will actually do what you said you were going to do. That's why they, they followed in this way. Interesting enough, we have to ask ourselves, do you wrestle in prayer with God over what he has promised? Do you wrestle with him? Do you say, God, you have promised and you said your word will not fail, so now, God, do what you said you will do. That's all over the Psalms as David prayed. 
Acts chapter 4. We have another prayer. And this prayer here is absolutely a phenomenal prayer the believers prayed together. So Peter and John have been in prison. They are released. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 23, it says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together. Notice the corporate prayer that is happening. They're praying together as a whole unit on these things. And now let's talk about what do they do as they raise their voices together. This is how they pray. Notice, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. We would call it this. They said, God, you were the creator of all things. It's the reason why we're going through Genesis to remember this because this is how the early church started off. What do they say? Creator God, notice what they said next. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, by the Holy Spirit said, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Literally, they said, God, you are the creator of the universe. God, you are the one who reveals himself to mankind. And how did he reveal himself? Through David, through the Holy Spirit. Your revelation has come. And it goes on, for, for truly in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Not only is the God, he is God of creation, the God of revelation, he is literally the God of history. They framed their prayer around this. The understanding that God, you were the one who made it, you were the one who spoke it, and you were the one who decided it. And now notice what they say next. God, you are God and we are not. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. Notice what they say, look upon their threats. They ask God, look at what they're doing. You are the judge. You are the judge of this whole earth. We are not going to say, God, you need to judge them. Because notice what they said. Look upon the threats that they're threatening us and grant your servants, what? Vengeance is what they said? No. They said, God, look upon the threats of these evil men. You are in control of history, and these evil men are threatening your church. Look upon them. And you know what? Do whatever you want to do with them. He's saying, notice them, they're saying. They're saying, but here is the plea that we're asking. The plea that they were asking was this. Speak. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of the Holy Spirit. And then they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God answered their prayer. They said, God, you are the one that is in control of all things. You are even the judge of this world. When these people threaten us, may we not run in fear. May we not even say, God, let me tell you how you need to judge these evil people. What did they say? Give us boldness to continue to keep doing what you have called us to do with our last dying breath. Give us boldness because we know we are weak and you are strong. It's interesting. As I've been studying this topic of prayer, it's amazing how prayer exposes your theology. Because we're really, really, really good at relying on someone, and it's ourself. We are experts at it. But as prayer exposes our theology, you know what it exposes in all of us? Pride. Because pride says, you did it. 
Why should you even thank God? You were the one who made the decision to buy the investment. You were the one who made that phenomenal choice. You were the one who set this up or set that up, but all the save fails. Why am I thanking him? I really should be saying, boy, I am a really smart guy. It's interesting. Prayer in and of itself, the position of prayer is a humbling manner, isn't it? Because what do we do with our heads when we go to pray? We bow our heads and pray, showing God as the one who we are going before, not ourselves. Charles Spurgeon, who had much to say about prayer, he said this, Prayer girds human weakness with divine strength. But let's be honest, if we think of ourselves as we would say this, prayer girds human strength with even more divine strength. Isn't that how many, sadly, we think? He goes on to say, prayer turns human folly into heavenly wisdom and gives to troubled mortals the peace of God. And he goes, we do not know what prayer can do. And I would say that amen and amen. A humble heart is seen here by the church in Acts. Peter and John are released. They're told to go and wait for the Holy Spirit, and what did they do? With a humble heart, they pray. They immediately go to prayer together because they believe that God is in control. We go to Him and we trust Him for the outcome. And we say, God, do what you have promised you will do. Prayer reminds us together that God is good, that God is merciful, and that is why we go to Him. That is why we do not pray to anyone other than God. That is why, because praying to anyone other than God will be absolutely fruitless. Because we are not able to do what God can do. So then corporate prayer then would be corporate humbling and corporate trust in the goodness of God. I'll repeat that one more time. So corporate prayer is corporate humbling and corporate trusting God and His goodness. So then what would be the opposite of that? So then not doing corporate prayer would be then corporate pride and corporate trust in the goodness of man. We've got this. We don't need to worry about that. I love what Charles Spurgeon said here too. He said, whether you like it or not, asking is the rule of heaven. God says what? Ask. And what do we like to respond with? I got this. All right, one of the most ironic times is when we're sharing prayer requests and we stop. Because what are you basically saying? We got this, God. We got the rest of this. We're only going to pray for these things, but we got the rest of it, right? You would, in theory, you would never get done writing out prayer requests because you would say, we need help in everything. Like, wh- why are we just saying we just need help in this area, but not that area, right? Isn't it amazing how, though, we are so quick to rely on self? Now, as we turn to this next year, in 2024, God has placed you in this church for such a time as this. What I really truly do believe the CBC needs to focus on with laser focus is on God and our unity of purpose. And so how do we get this way? How do we focus on these things? How do we focus on the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers? How do we do that? And how do we stay unified as there are so many things in this world that are trying to destroy? So many things around us that we would sit and say there is just evil having its way. 
Well, we do that by, again, let me review again, by being people of the Word, truly loving and devoting ourselves to what the apostles taught, loving one another, giving us humility, because in humility then we will be able to break bread with one another and praying together. It's interesting, though. When this was brought to my attention, there was a guy that had been in ministry for years sharing this. And you know what he said? He said, I have been a pastor of large churches. I've been a pastor of tiny churches. I've been a pastor of middle-sized churches. And here's what he said. He said, we had done so many programs, and we did programs incredibly well. And some of these programs were phenomenally success, earthly speaking. And he said, there was one thing, though, that we did not do very well at all. And there's one thing that if we would have done more of this, we would have been a healthier church than anything else we programized ourselves to death. And you know what he said? It was prayer. How quickly we are to plan. How quickly we are to do these things. And so one of the things, though, that I'm going to be calling us to is time where we set aside time as a church body in our church calendar for corporate prayer. Now, corporate prayer, in order to be corporate prayer, needs to be more than the Tim Yorgi family coming together to pray. Now, you may say where two or three are gathered, bear in mind the miss, all right? You don't get a cop out, all right? Corporate prayer would be gathering together corporately, praying for what God has for our church. Now, some of you may say, because the teacher in me goes, so what are the, going to be the struggles? Right? What are going to be the, the, you know, the kid in the back that raises his hand, but, you know, Mr. Yorgi, I don't have my, you know, whatever, and there goes the excuse. So let's go through the struggles. Some may say, well, if we're going to pray corporately, what does that look like? I'll help you out. It's a group of people gathered together, and we will split up into small little groups, and we will pray about the same thing corporately. And you may say, well, I'm not really good at praying. And I would say to you, if you can talk, you can pray. Think about this for a second. One of the shortest prayers in the Bible was, this, was the man who beat his chest and he dropped his head and he said, God, forgive me, a sinner. That's all you say. You've, you've accomplished a whole lot. I mean, like, if that's all you can put together, how about this? Help. I mean, isn't that what we need? But here's the other thing. If we're focused on the apostles' teaching and we're focused on the fellowship, this place should be a place of loving one another and we do not care how you sound. We don't care if you can hear sputtering words together. We want you to be obedient. We're not asking you to be polished. We're not asking you to be anything else because we are far from it and let's be honest, it's a good thing because we're not here to put on a show. We are here because we understand in a corporate setting that we need God in everything. You may say, but Pastor Tim, my Christian walk is a private one. It's between me and God. And I would say, yes, it is. But also remember, you have been saved into a body of believers. And you are meant to live in community with them. Literally, we saw that. They devoted themselves to the apostles and to the fellowship. That means when you are saved, you are saved into a body of believers. To live in community. So as I was walking through this, you know, there's always in your mind as you're doing, working on sermons, you go, all right, what's a passage of scripture that literally commands we need to pray corporately together? 
And you know what I found? Their one does not exist. And you go, so then why are we doing this? Because here's what the Bible does. It assumes you are praying. Everywhere in the Bible talks about prayer. It says pray without ceasing, which means you're already doing what? Praying. It says they gather themselves to pray. Everywhere in the Bible, it, it, it talks about prayer as something that believers do naturally. This is what believers do. They pray. And they pray together. They pray separately. They pray together. When you pray, pray and watch. All right? You see that? Because these are things that are going to... You do these. And so when we walk through this together, we need to say, so what are we going to be praying about, Tim? Well, turn your Bibles to James. Remember we had talked about before we pray the promises of God back to God. Before we get to that text here, though, I want to take a moment and think through this here for a second. If you were ever part of a church leadership in any way, shape, or form, either now or if you've ever been in the past, you will find out very quickly the leaders of the church are men with feet of clay. All right? They are, by God's grace, just sinners saved by grace, asked to carry a load of a church to shepherd a flock. They're not anything special. And I'll help you out. We don't have any special leadership here either. All right? We're just a group of guys, by God's grace, trying to follow Him and trying to point you to Christ. Now, that being said... I'll also let you know, we don't have the crystal ball of, like, what, are, what is this next year going to look like, all right? So, like, to give you an example, I'm not up here going to give you a really catchy phrase. There's way too many that, that handle the four, like 2024, and then anything rhymes with four. There's some really cool, catchy phrases, but that will not help you. When your time of testing and sin is in front of you, no little catchy phrase is going to be like, oh, isn't that great? What we desperately need from God is incredible wisdom because we live in a day and age that every single day is getting closer and closer to the Lord's return and every single day sin is attacking us all over the place. And we must not waver. But here's the other thing. If you're looking for all of a sudden Tim to know the answer, you are looking for the wrong place because here's literally what the Bible tells us. This is James literally telling us a promise of God. In James chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, and we all raise our hand and say, That is me. Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubt, for he who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So, each one of us is alive today, has been brought here for this very purpose, and you have been placed in Stratford Community Bible Church for this very purpose. And for order for us to remain faithful, we must make wise decisions. And where is that wisdom going to come from? What did we just read? God has promised we need to ask. And we need to pound heaven on these things. I was listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg on this, and uh, because I grew up uh, playing these mind-numbing games, there was a game where you had this little critter guy, then he would jump up and hit his head on things, and whenever he hit his head on things, coins would come around. And there were times you would keep hitting, and you didn't know if the bricks you were hitting would give you a coin or not give you a coin, but you hit the bricks, 
no matter what, because you might get a coin, you may not get a coin. And Alistair Begg goes, that's how many times he wrestles with God, saying, I'm going to keep bashing my head against the, the floor of heaven until you answer, because you have promised you will answer. And I'm going to sit here and wait until you answer, because guess what you have promised? That you will give us wisdom. And if you haven't given us wisdom yet, what are you telling us to do? Stop and wait until you have the wisdom to move on. And so as we prepare for the next generation, and what I mean by prepare for the next generation, we do not know the battles the next generation will face. But we do know the truth that will get them through those battles. One of the most powerful things I ever came across was in one of the briefings where, where Moeller said, you know what, if I were to try to go back to my in the 1950s and try to get a, a church ready for the 2024s, I would not have been able to think even clearly of what they were going to face. I, nowhere in 1950 would ever said in 2024, this is where we're going to be morally. But here's what he did say. The teachings of God are the same in 1950 as they are in 2024 to keep the church faithful. And so what do we need to give them? We don't need to have some newfangled tool or anything else. We need the apostles' teaching. We need the fellowship caring for one another. We need obedience found when we gather together in communion, and we need prayer. And what I mean by prayer is a call not only personally, but corporately, praying all together about one thing. So here's how we're going to implement it. You all know, how do we eat an elephant? And the answer is one bite at a time, right? Is before we walk, we need to crawl. I would say we do a decent job individually praying, but corporately praying for one thing gathered together is a, if you want to use a car terminology, a piston that needs to start firing more consistently. So on Monday nights, before we get into the book, uh, Christianity and Liberalism, we're going to spend about 10, 15 minutes at the beginning praying corporately together about whatever Pastor Tim or who's leading says we're going to corporately pray about. Then we're going to work on doing this as a group. So if you, if you like marking down cal on your calendar, February 18th and March 17th, those are both Sundays, February 18th and March 17th, we're going to, after the service is over, we're going to go back out into Fellowship Hall, we'll have a little lunch, and then we're going to come back in here and we're going to corporately pray together until we're done. And we're going to pray about certain things that the Lord has laid on the leadership heart for us to pray about together. And we will wrestle with the throne of God together. Now, one of the things we're doing, so to hold us all accountable, when you do corporate prayer, one of the best things to do is do it corporately. So what we're going to try to do, this would take a group effort. We'll go out there, we'll set up Fellowship Hall, and then we'll all get back in here. That means no one gets to hide in the kitchen cleaning. All right, we're all going to come in here and we're going to pray. Dishes can wait. All right, all you OCD people just look forward. All right, they can wait. All right, we can come in here and we can clean it later. All right, no one's playing. The Packers have lost by then. The Eagles will have lost by then. It's, there's no excuses, all right, that we have to rush off to anything. Because here's what's in front of us. Remember when Jesus said to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed? What did he tell them to do? Pray. What did they really do a good job of? Sleep. My prayer is that we are a church that is praying, not a church that is asleep. Now, we don't pat ourselves on the back 
because we think how good we are. If we realize how weak we are, what will we do? Stay up and pray, right? But if you think you got it, what do you do? You sleep. And so this has been a call. This is when uh, Pastor Caleb and I were sitting at this conference when this guy was talking. It was like a wake-up call, like a two-by-four across our heads saying, wake up. You need to do this together as a church body. Now, I don't know what this is going to look like. Notice we only have two on the calendar. All right, we're going to be asking God for wisdom, what this looks like. If you can make it, great. If you can't make it, that is, obviously you can't make it. But what I'm encouraging you to do is circle these dates, be here for these times. Because I really do believe this is what's going to call, cause us to have unity of purpose as we move forward. If you've noticed, though, you haven't seen the eight, nine-step plan for the future of the church. Because guess who knows that? God does. And we'll pound the throne of heaven for him to guide us. Because here's what we're asking for. I don't need to know the eight-year plan. What do we need to know is what is the next step? What is the next step you've called us to? And I truly do believe our next step is to come before him, become before the throne corporately saying, God... What is the next step? I'm really excited about where the Lord is leading this church. I'm excited about what God has done over the last three and four years that is here. It is clear that God is building his church, and we want to make sure that we do not get in the way. So let's pray. Dearly Father, as we're about ready to sing a song, that you be our vision. Help us to be people who love you, love prayer, love going before the throne. There's so many things in this world that drive our attention elsewhere, but help us to be people. Desire to come before you and you alone in prayer, praying, saying, Lord, give us the wisdom we desperately Help us, we pray. We are weak, but you are strong. In your son's name we pray. Amen. If you could stand with us as we sing.